I know it's hard to believe for some of you, but I actually have some friends in this world. And, and I don't even have to pay them to be my friends. They just, the reason that they can be my friends is because they live on the other side of the, of the country. And we don't get to see each other very often. But I am thrilled today, and I just want to take a few minutes to introduce you to some close, dear friends of Amy and I. Amy, you and Cindy go all the way back to kindergarten, don't you? Yeah, kindergarten together. Um, and um, in the course of life, God puts people in your path that you don't always get to spend a lot of time with, and if you could, you would choose to do it, but when you do get to spend time with them, they always leave you feeling encouraged, they leave you feeling sharper, and I want you to meet this friend of mine, Sam, Sam Brock, come on up here. Um, Sam, Sam heads up, yeah, you, there's a call for you, Sam. <laughs> Sam heads up a ministry, and he's going to tell you about it in California. And what I love about Sam is a lot of people would see this ministry as parachurch, but it's just 100% about the church. It's 100% about the church. And he may not tell you this, but in California, this is where they minister. They have a camping ministry in California. Last year, during COVID in California, they kept their camp open all summer by God's grace. By God's grace, not because Sam's so wonderful, even though I think he is, but because of how wonderful our God is. And so I just want you to hear a little bit about what God's doing out on the West Coast, because all we hear is the bad stuff here. Because all we hear is the bad stuff. Yeah, share, share a little bit with our folks, Sam. It's, I'm so glad to have you guys here, and I'm putting you on the spot. But you did tell me anything that I wanted, I could get from you. So. And then I was sitting there and I'm like, okay, everything's full. I don't have, I can just relax. And then uh, all this happens. Uh, it is uh, Ironwood Camp uh, out in Southern California. Draw a line between LA and Vegas. We're right there in the middle. Uh, we serve about 140 churches on 830 acres, uh, horses and a big giant lake and all of those fun things. Uh, we also have a camps in uh, New York and Wyoming and Northern California that we work with and, and uh, try to help. But one of the things that I, I think that is so interesting is that camp is uh, many times thought of as a facility and that sort of thing. But it's uh, just like this church. We come to this church and it has little to do with doorknobs and buildings and roofs and parking lots, but it has everything to do with the people uh, that are in the church. That's what uh, starts, gives it its uniqueness and its personality and all of those uh, types of things. It was interesting this uh, that when we did operate, uh, they said that you couldn't run uh, camp, but you could run day camp. And so we had a church in Newport Beach uh, who called us up and said, we want to run day camp. We'll put our, we'll get a hotel, uh, we'll eat at McDonald's. We just, our kids need camp. And so uh, we said, well, let's see if we can be a little creative. Uh, we will tell our county we're running day camp, and then in the evening time we'll be a hotel. And if you need to rent a counselor, we can. Uh, and, and so that's exactly what we did. They came and they paid for two things. They paid for camp in the daytime, and they paid for their hotel at night, and we did that five nights in a row. Uh, and uh, at the end, every night at 10.30, uh, thanks, that camp is over uh, for today. See you tomorrow at 7.30. Uh, and they would all go uh, trucking off with their counselor, and, and uh, we operated that way the entire time. County never showed up the entire time uh, we were there. The day after California opened up, uh, two county officers uh, showed up. 
toured the entire facility, saw that we were operating. We're so excited about it. Uh, we do have a county that uh, very much is interested in us operating, and we thank the Lord uh, for that. Not every camp we work with uh, was able to do that, and uh, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. This last summer, we saw over 100 kids come to know the Lord with uh, well over 1,700 kids there. I want to tell you just a quick thing. i got two minutes, right? Okay. Uh, <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a little kid, eight years old. That means five or ten. I <laughs> Uh, as a little kid, they said, you can work in the general store. And I don't know why. At eight years old, you're put on the snow cones, and you squirt those little things. You squirt juice all over the place. And, uh, and then you work your way up. And by the time you're like 14, you're a shift manager, and you get to run the register. And in junior camp, there's nothing worse than on Friday when the little kids, they have this little camper bank, and they get their cash, and they, they come up, and they've got all this money, and they put it up on the counter, and they, you know, they're holding the candy bar. And they look at you, and they're like, is that enough? And I mean, it's like 45 bucks, and you're like, oh, just barely. Uh, but you, you make change, and you give it back, and, and then uh, it goes that way all week long. I mean, they've got their little pile, they pay, but it's getting smaller and smaller. And somewhere along the way on Friday, they show up, and they put a dime, a nickel, and two pennies on the thing, and they're holding the candy bar and a soda. Is that enough? And, and, I, and it is the saddest moment when you look down and you say, uh, that's, that's not enough. <laughs> it's not enough? No, you only have 17 cents here. It's not, it's not enough? And he turns up and he walks, and I feel so bad, but I've helped the last 17 kids buy a soda. And I'm like, I, I don't have any more money either. <laughs> I don't have enough. In Matthew 16, 26, the word of God uh, tells us that for what, is a profit is a, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Do you realize that you could own this entire world. We just flew over part of our country, flew into Ohio, and you're like, wow, this is a big place. There's a lot of stuff, there's a lot of houses. What if you own the entire country? Well, we're not doing so good. What if you own the entire world? You had it all. And you said to God, I just wanna buy one soul. I, I'm looking at the price tag here on my soul, it's a little smudged, but I have three quadrillion dollars. I own the world. And I'd like to buy my one soul. And this verse says, it's not enough. Not enough. What does that mean? One soul is worth more than the whole planet. We just saw those little kids run out here. How exciting is that? Every one of those souls worth more than the whole planet. Yep, there's some rich people in this world. Cindy used to live in New Albany. It's a different place than when she lived in it. And there's some nice homes in that area. But they can't buy a soul. One is worth more than all. That little phrase rattles around at Ironwood all the time. It's posted all over the place. But because it's the reminder that that eight or nine-year-old kid that just frustrates you so much that keeps asking you what's next and won't eat what's on their plate and gets up early in the morning and won't go to bed at night, that one soul is worth more than all. So your coworker, your spouse, your brother, your sister, the one in your pew, that soul's worth more 
than the whole planet. I wonder if we live that way, if we act that way, if we prioritize that way. It's one of the things I think that makes the Ironwood something that is a fun place to be, is because the people that are there care about the souls that are there. So if you're ever in California, I welcome you to drop on by. You're only five minutes off the I-15. If you're driving through the desert and you look off and you're like, who in the world would live here? That's probably our spot uh, right there. I'd love to see you. You, you, know, you. you know that part in Cars where he's, uh, where Lightning McQueen's like, I'm the first one on the new road. As he's, that's where they live. <laughs> that's where they live. And uh, God's used them in an amazing way. And I'm so thankful for friendships, and I'm thankful to be able to introduce Sam and Cindy to you guys. Um, and when we think we have it, you know, tough here in Ohio, um, I can't even imagine some of the things they're facing out there. But um, God is good and gives us good friendships. Luke chapter 13 this morning. Luke chapter 13. And as we have kind of dived back into the book of Luke, one of the things that just hit me this week as I was preparing was we're starting to see some repeated themes and even some, some accounts that are very similar to other accounts that we've seen in the book of Luke. And, and, and I have to ask myself, why, why are we seeing similar accounts? For instance, this morning, we're going we're gonna to have activities that Jesus is doing centered on the Sabbath day in a synagogue. And we've already seen that in the book of Luke. Early on in the book of Luke, we see Jesus in a synagogue on the Sabbath day. Why is Luke continually developing this theme? And what's he doing with this? And why does he keep drawing attention to this? And remember, Luke is written to a man who, who we think has become a believer or he's on the verge of becoming a believer, one of the two. And, and the whole premise of Luke writing, first the Gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts is, is to, to explain to this guy who we call Theophilus that, that this is who Jesus is and this is what he began, the church. And, and so Luke has, has picked, as he has heard the oral history of Jesus from others, he has picked these accounts under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he has he's penned them masterfully for us. And so we come now to Luke 13 and verse 10. One deals with this encounter between Jesus and a crippled woman in a synagogue. If you're writing a story, those are elements that you just don't put together. You know, a synagogue on the Sabbath day, a crippled woman, and, and Jesus. And yet, this is, this is the account that, that God has woven for us this morning. And so, this morning, I want to read verses 10 through 21. Get your Bible out. Paper copy, electronic copy. Get, get a copy of God's Word out. And follow along with me as I read Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21 this morning. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Just stop and let that sink in. How many of you have back issues? How many of you, like, really get tired of the back issues when it's been, like, a day? How many, like, it goes on, maybe it lasts for a week? 18 years. 18 years. You thought putting up with your 18-year-old was hard. 18 years of putting up with your 18-year-old with a back issue. So here she is, 18 years. She can't straighten herself. Verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But, 
the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And he said again, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like a leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now, full disclosure this morning. I intended, in fact, your bulletin says I'm preaching verses 10 through 17. And I wrestled with these last four verses, verses 18 through 21. At first, the wrestling match was, okay, Luke, okay, Holy Spirit, why these four verses right in the middle of this passage of Scripture? Why? Then the wrestling match was, okay, okay, God, I know that you're all wise, and Holy Spirit, I know when you inspire the word, there's a purpose here, so it must tie to verses 22 through 30, because it sure doesn't fit with verses 10 through 17. And the more I thought about it, and the more I dug into it, the more I realized this is the key to our understanding of this whole passage. So we're going to get there this morning, but let's, let's go through the account as Luke gives it to us this morning. The setting is a synagogue. The setting is a synagogue, something that you and I don't really relate to, and, and, and it's on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day is the day that's been set aside by God in the Old Testament law. It's the day that, that, that the people are to rest. Not only are they to rest, but according to Deuteronomy, it's the day, according to Deuteronomy 5.15, that, that the children of Israel, the descendants of those who left Egypt, are to consider God's faithfulness in delivering them from Egypt. And so this is a day that God has programmed for them. Every seventh day on Saturday, you stop from your work, you rest, and you think about how I delivered you. As with anything that God prescribes, when man takes it, he adds to it, he takes away from it, and it gets a little perverted, doesn't it? And so now the Sabbath day has become this time for, for the Jewish people in, in the situation that they're in now, by the time that Christ is there, we have taken this thing and, and, and man has so overprogrammed the thing. So it's not enough that God said to rest, we have to tell you how you have to rest. Okay? And, and, and that's what happens when you get any, any, any ruling body of men involved in, in, in helping God along here, we're going to overprogram this thing. And so now we have all these unwritten traditions that are called Mishnahs that are being handed down. You can do this, but you can't do this. Oh, if you need to do this, you can do this, but only this way. And so, so what's happened is the Sabbath day has turned into this day where you're like almost afraid to even breathe on it. And God just said, I just need you to rest and think about my goodness. That's, that's the setting that we're in now. And there's a synagogue here. We don't know where, where the synagogue is. We know that there's lots of synagogues, though in the land of Israel. 
Because it only took 10 men to form a synagogue. So think about this. One of the things that amazed me some 20 years ago when we came to Johnstown was, was the number of Baptist churches around Johnstown. And, and as I, the longer I was here, the more I realized these are all just like kissing cousin Baptist churches. That at some point in the past, these people didn't like these people. They got upset about that. So we're going to go start our own Baptist church. And we're going to start our own Baptist church. And we're going to start this Baptist church. And, 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 and synagogues were kind of that way in Israel as well. Anytime you got 10 men who could agree on something, they would go form their own synagogue. And so a synagogue was set up. It was just a place where you had men who were, who were in charge there. Women were welcome to come, but you certainly weren't allowed to get up in front and address anybody. And each synagogue had a man who was kind of in charge. He was the ruler. Don't equate him with the pastor. That's, that's not what he was. he was. He was the ruler. He was kind of the organizer of what happened. And on any given Sabbath day, when you went to the synagogue, you didn't know who was going to get up and speak. Can you imagine coming to church on Sunday and not sure if, if, if Matt Huggins is going to get up and preach or Don Slaughter is going to get up and preach? And we're not sure what's going to happen. And they would show up. For, for worship on the Sabbath day, and, and a man would get up, and he would open the Torah, and he would read a passage out of the Old Testament, and he would give his interpretation of it. What a perfect setting for Jesus to come into, right? What a perfect setting for Jesus to come into. And so Jesus comes into this synagogue, and we know from chapter 4 in the book of Luke that it was Jesus' habit on the Sabbath day to go into the synagogue, wherever he was, pick up the Word of God, read a passage of Scripture, and expound on it. That's what Jesus did. So he's doing this in verse 10. He's teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath day. If it's a small synagogue, I imagine it's pretty packed because Jesus is there. And so, so the people are hanging on his every word. The people, he's still popular with the people. He's not popular with the religious leaders. And they're soon about to poison the people against him. But here Jesus is. He's teaching. The people are just like taking it all in. And he's interrupted. He's interrupted. I've been interrupted before. There have been times that I've been preaching, I've been teaching, I've been totally interrupted. I remember one year it, during the winter, I'm preaching my heart out, and everybody sitting out where you're sitting is like looking past me out the window. And I'm, I'm like, what is going on out there? I mean, I know it's snowing, and everybody's like, oh, snow. But no, there's, there's, do you remember when there was a bunch of deer on the hill? How many remember when that happened? <laughs> Pagans, all of you. You know when the speaker's rhythm is broken. In Jesus, verse 11, Luke, Luke puts it this way, and behold, like suddenly, out of the blue, there's a woman who has a disabling spirit for 18 years. She's bent over, cannot fully straighten herself. Okay? If a woman who was totally hunched over walked in and decided to come sit right down here, would she not gather the attention of this room this morning right now? Would she not gather the attention? Most of us would be like, that poor thing. Let me give her a seat back here. This woman walks in, and Luke gives us the backstory. 18 years, 
She's not been able to stand up. 18 years she's been dealing with this. And if you take into account what we talked about last week in the message at the beginning of chapter 13, the Jews had this belief that if you were going through intense suffering, there must have been something really bad in your life to have caused that suffering. So, so when she walks in, there are people who know her, and there's like, there's that poor, pitiable woman. If she would just confess her sins, I'm sure God would heal her. And she walks into this room, and when Jesus sees her, he interrupts his message. He interrupts his message, verse 12. He called over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. This is a unique healing story. In a lot of the healing stories that we find Jesus involved in, there, there seems to always be this sense where the person comes with this expectancy to be healed. They're, they're crying out for healing. They're asking for it. They're asking for deliverance. Or there are people around them that love them that are asking for deliverance for this person. None of that is recorded for us. Jesus takes the initiative here, and he says, Woman, you're healed. And then he goes to her, verse 13, he lays his hands on her and she is made straight immediately. And, and, and what does she do? What would you do if that was you? You might get a little Baptocostal, wouldn't you? Right? If you hadn't been able to walk straight upright for 18 years, you might have danced in the synagogue. You, you might have uttered a couple hallelujahs and praise gods, and, and you would have been sure to express your thanks. And juxtaposed with that, we now have this woman who is speaking in the synagogue. Okay? That's a no-no. This woman is addressing Jesus, the one who's teaching in the synagogue, which is a further no-no. And, and, and so you've got now this woman who, who has been miraculously delivered doing something, and, and all the people are like, whoa, this is big. And the ruler of the synagogue does what any good legalist would do. He gets up to restore order. What's interesting to me about verse 14, as we begin to look at the responses, is... The ruler of the synagogue doesn't deny Jesus' power to heal. He doesn't attack his power to heal. Earlier on, we saw in the Gospels where, oh, you're healing because you have the power of the devil. You're healing in the power of Beelzebub. He doesn't attack any of it. He doesn't delegitimize any of this. He basically says, you know what? If you want to get healed, there's six other days of the week to get healed here. Don't, don't come in and get healed on the Sabbath. And it dawned on me. This is what he was really saying. This is what he was really saying. Miraculous power is good for these other six days of the week, but leave our traditions alone here. Leave our traditions alone here. You, you have done messed with something you shouldn't mess with here, Jesus. You want to heal? Feel free to heal. There are six other days for you to do this. But don't bring it into to this synagogue and definitely don't do it on the Sabbath day. You see his words there in verse 14? There's six days in which to work, which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. How sad is it that he didn't understand that, that true healing was really found in the Word of God, which Jesus was bringing? 
he wasn't there to get healing himself. He was there to make sure that the traditions were kept and that rules weren't broken. And in a way that only Jesus gets away with, verse 15, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. It's a word that is going to keep coming from Jesus' mouth. We saw it in chapter 12 and verse 56. And he utters it again, you hypocrites. And then he uses this argument that Jesus is really a master at. Because, because what's happened here is, is, is the, the ruler of the synagogue in verse 14 has appealed to Mosaic law, Exodus 20, verse 9, if you want to know where he's appealing to. And he's basically said this, we don't work on the Sabbath day. Because this is what God told us. We don't work on the Sabbath day. And he doesn't immediately address Jesus. Notice that as well. Who does he address in verse 14? He doesn't take Jesus on with this. Who does he take on? He appeals to the people. He, he probably is smart enough to realize this. I'm not going to get into a battle of wits with, with him. I'm going to try and get the people on my side here. Jesus has none of this, and he uses an argument that we call argument from lesser to greater. An argument from lesser to greater, and, and this is the way he works it. He says, you hypocrites, don't your own rules even teach this? Don't your own mishnas, your, your, your unwritten down, but your oral traditions, don't they teach this? Look, does it not teach you on the Sabbath, verse 15, that, that you untie your donkey or your ox from the manger and you lead it away to water? Is, is that not work under the Mosaic law? You're caring for your livestock, but, but you have these loopholes in your own law so that you can go do this on the, on the Sabbath day. And they're like, yeah, we, you can hear the people like, yeah, yeah, I watered my livestock this morning before I came to the, to the Sabbath service. And then he says in verse 16, and ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, one of our own, whom Satan is bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? How many of you get irritated when the news is all about the abuse of animals and not about murders and things going on in the world? You ever get, you ever get bothered by that? It was going on in Jesus' day, too. They were more concerned about their animals than they were about people who were hurting. And Jesus calls them on it. And it's interesting when he does, note the reactions in verse 17. The adversaries are put to shame. It's, it's almost like foiled again. You know, and they, they put their tails between their legs and they walk out in shame. And, and, but they don't even understand the shame that they're in. And the people rejoice at all the glorious things that were done by him. And so, so you've, got, you've got these people who are humiliated in front of the people, and there's no record of their hearts being humbled, any repentance or anything like that taking place here. They just go off in their shame, and they, and they go off in their cold-hearted, unfeeling hypocrisy. There's no joy in their hearts that Jesus has healed this woman. There's, there's, no, there's no understanding that we just saw something really amazing here in our synagogue right now. Most of the people, though, are praising him for the glorious things that are done by him. 
Another display of Jesus' divine power. Another opportunity given to them to respond and to witness Christ's work. And if you will, it's a little glimpse of the kingdom of God. It's a little glimpse of the kingdom of God that's happening right in front of them. And you say, why would you say that, PD? Well, go back a couple pages in your Bible to Luke chapter 11. Late in the spring, we were in Luke chapter 11. And verse 14, Jesus is casting this demon out of this man who can't speak. And the people are amazed, but he gets attacked. According to verse 15, they're saying he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. And so Jesus responds, and here's what he says. Go down to verse 18. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by who do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, catch the next phrase. What's happening then? He's saying, if I'm casting out demons with the power of God, then what's happening here? Well, he's saying the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, that's an important phrase to the Jews, the kingdom of God. They're, look, they're waiting for the kingdom of God. Now, they're waiting for this earthly king to reappear and, and, and to take over the throne and, and to throw off Roman oppression. And, and Jesus is now announcing, here I am doing something in the, only the power of God that only God himself would do. And I'm doing it in front of you, and it's not the power of Satan. And I am saying to you, if I'm really doing this, then the kingdom of God is upon you. Wake up, folks. It's here. And so, keeping that in mind, go back to chapter 13 now. Jesus, in another direct confrontation, they don't even realize it's a direct confrontation, but in this direct confrontation with Satan, again, he flicks Satan aside, the finger of God, right? He flicks Satan aside, and, and, and he delivers this woman, and he just goes right back to teaching. Do you see it there in verse 18? He said, therefore... It's Luke's way of connecting this thought back. This, we don't know what he's teaching in verse 10, but, but obviously what he's teaching in verse 10 relates to something that, that he's about to say here in verse 18 and following. He, he's going on and he's teaching them. He gets interrupted by this, by this poor woman. He heals her and he immediately goes back to his teaching. And here's the theme of his teaching. Two questions. What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? You say, why are those questions so important for us? Well, if we truly believe that God is sovereign and rules over all, then if he's a ruler, he has a kingdom, does he not? Does that make sense, church? If God is truly sovereign and rules over all, then he must have a kingdom, right? And it would be important to understand what that kingdom is and, and, and to make sure that, 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 that my life aligns with that kingdom. You'll find the term kingdom of God in the New Testament in 10 different books, and you'll find it 68 times. You'll find it in the book of Matthew referred to as the kingdom of heaven 32 times. 
Unless you wonder if the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are different things, I'm just going to say to you they're not, and here's one proof. This very account that Luke records here, Matthew records in Matthew chapter 13, verses 32 and 33, and instead of using kingdom of God, he uses kingdom of heaven language. Okay? So the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are the same thing. What is it? We need to understand what it is because there's a lot of talk today and there's a lot of preaching today. You, you, can, you can turn on your computer and listen. You can, you can listen to podcasts and you'll hear a lot of talk about the kingdom of God and, and kingdom living and kingdom this and doing things in kingdom power. You heard that stuff before? And it sounds kind of mystical, doesn't it? It sounds kind of like, well, there's this power that I don't really have in my life that I got to kind of tap into a little bit, that kingdom power. And, 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 and do kingdom living. Let me make it simple for you. If you are the child of God, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you are living in the kingdom. You're a part of the kingdom. What do we mean by the kingdom of God? Broadly speaking, God's sovereign. He rules over all. He's sovereign. He rules over all. More narrowly, if we want to break that down, his rule right now is in the hearts of those who are his children, who are his followers. But it doesn't end there. The kingdom of God will culminate in something that we'll be able to see, that we'll be able to touch, that we'll be able to sense. It's going to culminate with Christ's physical rule and reign on earth, a reign that will ultimately last for all of eternity. Some theologians take it and they break it down this way, and I kind of like the way that they classify it. They refer to that future physical reign of Christ as the kingdom of glory. It, it's coming. The kingdom of glory is coming. And they refer to the present kind of unseen rule of Christ that's going on right now that sometimes, quite honestly, we forget that Christ rules and reigns. Do we forget that? Be honest with me. How many of you on Thursday, when the president came out with some of that ridiculous stuff he came out with, forgot that Jesus rules? We do, don't we? We forget. I saw some of your posts. I'm finding a state that we're seceding and I'm going. <laughs> I got good news for you. You don't need to find a state. There's a greater kingdom that you're a part of. We don't need to secede. And I know you were being funny about it, but here's the reality, folks. King Jesus wins. And his kingdom will prevail. And it doesn't seem that way right now. And when that happened on Thursday, I'm like, oh, this is going to fit nicely. <laughs> but that present unseen rule of Christ that's in the hearts of his followers right now, many call it the rule of grace. And... Here's what Jesus does. He takes, he does two similes here. You might call them parables. I call them similes. They're, they're like this. This is like this. And the two similes he gives are something that they understood very well. And the first one is in verse 19. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of God is like this. It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and it became a seed, and the birds of the air made nets in his branches. A mustard seed was probably the smallest seed that they would use for growing for agriculture. Not the smallest seed ever, okay? 
but the smallest seed that they would use to sow, okay? It's much smaller than a, than a, than a grain of corn or even a grain of wheat. The mustard seed is small. And so Jesus here is saying this. First, he's saying this. It's like a grain of mustard seed. And what happens is you put that mustard seed in the ground, you plant it, and it grows into this giant bush that's probably 10 to 15 feet tall. And it's got such a big structure that even the birds can come and and they can find a place to live there. See there? That's what he says in verse 19. And what he's referring to here is this, that, that there is going to be this large, external, observable growth with his kingdom. It starts small, but it's going to get big. And when you think about it, it started really small, did it? It started really small. After Jesus dies and he's resurrected, I mean, how many are there when, when, he, when he leaves this earth? There's, there's, there's just a handful of people, right? There's just a handful of people. And, 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 and it, it, you're thinking to yourself, if you're there, and if I'm, if I'm one of the apostles at that time, I'm like, this movement ain't going anywhere. The one who's all-powerful has left us. And looking around, he's left Peter, he's left John, he's left Thomas. These are the guys that he's going to work through? Yeah, it is. And because they carried out the ministry of discipleship, that's a ministry that's given to you and I as well, to go and make disciples, because they carried that out, because they took that seriously, and because those who came after them took that seriously, and those who came after that took that seriously, we've got this giant movement you do realize, Sam, bear it out. Churches are alive and well in California, aren't they? Preaching the gospel, right? It's not just a Midwestern thing. It's not just a U.S. thing. We had Manasseh Wakawa here a couple weeks ago. And, and, and it, sometimes we get all worried about our Nigerian brothers and sisters and all they're facing. But here's the thing. The church is flourishing in Nigeria. It's expanding. It's so much so, it's like squeezing out past the borders of the country. And we get so sometimes siloed in our own little world here that that we fail to see that that Christ's church is alive and it's very well and it's flourishing. It's like this mustard seed that's grown. And and, and we're part of that kingdom, and and we're really a part of that kingdom when we start to carry out the kingdom kingdom orders to to go and make disciples and to fellowship and to worship together. But that's not all it is. Look at verse 20. He says again, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? And he says this, "It's it's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. Now, this one could be a little confusing because if you know anything about your Bible, leaven is usually a type of what? Sin, right? In fact, there were certain times and at certain Jewish feasts, they had to go through the whole house and sweep and sweep and sweep and sweep to make sure that they got all the leaven out. Jesus isn't talking about sin here. He's talking about something that, that, notice what he says in his language, it's hidden in three measures of flour. If you wonder what three measures of flour is, it's about 50 pounds of flour. I'm not a baker. How many of you are bakers, ladies? How much bread could you bake with 50 pounds of flour? Is it fair to say a lot? A lot, right? 
I'm guessing you don't put 50 pounds of leaven in with that 50 pounds of flour, right? It's a small amount, right? And notice what Jesus says, you hide it in there. How do you know if flour has been leavened? By what happens over time, right? By what happens over time. Eventually it will rise. It will transform that, that dough into something much greater than it was. And I think what Jesus here is picturing for us is this, that kind of hidden effect of the kingdom of God. And this is where I want to encourage us this morning, folks. And I needed this encouragement for my own heart this week. It really seems like we're not accomplishing a thing in this world, doesn't it, as followers of Jesus? At times, doesn't it feel that way? Feels like we're not getting anything done. And I think that's exactly where God wants us because he doesn't want us thinking we're doing anything. He's the one doing it through us. And at times we get discouraged. And, it, and, and it's not just what's going on in, in a big scale in the world. Maybe it's what's going on in your life, in your family right now. And you feel like, I'm the only one who's hanging with you here, Lord. And everybody else seems to be falling away. And nothing is happening. Take heart. It takes time for leaven to work. Take heart. You don't always know that the leaven's in there. But if you take the leaven out, is there any hope of transferring or transforming the dough? No. There's no hope at all. Yet it is having its effect. Whether or not we see results, every time we faithfully are an ambassador for Christ and carrying out his message and, 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 and proclaiming the truth of his word, we are having a leavening effect on those around us. I love it. Sam talks about these little nine-year-olds that are so annoying. Every Awana worker can relate to that. Can you not? Sometimes it's the 11 and 12-year-olds that are the most annoying. But here's the thing. Every week they come, we have an opportunity to be leavened. Don't we? Every week they come, we have an opportunity to be leavened. It may seem like evil is winning right now. I love the way Martin Luther penned it in his wonderful hymn, A Mighty Fortress. He, he said this. He, he ended the hymn with these words of triumph. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abides still. His kingdom is forever. And here's the thing. I know because I'm feeling it myself. There's a big part of me that wants to just go hide in my basement and wring my hands. Are you with me on that? There's a part of me that just wants to like, Bleh. the most important thing you and I can be doing right now is kingdom work. This is the time to do kingdom work. This is the time. Yeah, our country is probably going to rot and fall away. God's kingdom isn't. This is the time to do kingdom work. This is the time to be evangelizing. This is the time, this is the time more than ever we need to gather to worship and proclaim God's glorious name. 
This is the time more than ever where we need to be together and, and, and fellowshipping with one another and encouraging one another. This is the time more than ever that we need to be discipling others. Because we are the ambassadors of the king. We speak for the king. Not because we're qualified, but because he enables us, because he's so good to use us. And we represent here, here until he removes us. And there is coming a day when he will remove us. And then he will come and he will physically rule and reign. And so don't, don't be like the ruler of the synagogue who missed the whole idea of the kingdom being there. He was so preoccupied with making sure that the sanctity of the Sabbath had been protected that he totally missed the bigger picture. He missed the message of healing that was available for him as well. Do you realize the very same Jesus who healed this woman who couldn't walk upright for 18 years could have healed his soul that day? It's easy to get concerned about what's going on in our own lives and what's going on around us. But to me, it only reinforces this need that you and I have to have a greater allegiance to the true kingdom that's not going to fail, that's not going to pass away. And so we all don't need to secede and find the state that's going to secede first. We all don't need to put our money together and buy an island out in the middle of the tropics. I know that sounds pretty enticing, though. What we need to do, what we need to do, is to be exactly what God's called us to do. We're salt and we're light. Does the world need a little flavor right now? Does the world need a little light right now? Does the world need hope right now? Yeah. Not the kind of hope that we're getting in Washington, to be honest with you. It needs true hope. It needs true hope. And if we're not going to be the one to do it, who is? Do me a favor this week. How many of you are active on your social media? I know who you are. How many of you are active on your social media? Use it this week to be salt and light. Use it this week to be salt and light. Don't use it to complain. You're just like the rest of the world. Have you figured this out? I figured out the whole thing with masks and vaccines and all this stuff. I've got it all figured out. You ready for me to tell you what it is? I got it all figured out. It's just an opportunity for people to complain. No matter what side you're on, right? Just an opportunity to complain. The world's got enough complaining. What the world doesn't have enough of is truth. Amen. Let's, let's be the ones who carry the truth to the world with grace this week. Father, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And you are doing great work. You're doing big things. And at times we don't see that. Partly because we're too busy watching the world. But I pray that today that you would have reminded us from the word what great things you are accomplishing. And Lord, individually we're not much. Individually we can't accomplish much. 
but with your power, with your spirit, and together working as the church, we can be mighty. It doesn't take much leaven to transform the dough. It's my prayer that, that we as your church here in Johnstown would have a transforming effect in this community. That, that, that evil would be blunted because we proclaim truth. That we not just proclaim it, but that we live it. And that, and that we, we truly shine your love. Make these things to be so, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.